Hello and welcome. You're listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show podcast. Join me as we go delving through the archives to find out about people, places and events that happened in the past. These were stories that were big news in their day, but are largely forgotten now. Most of these podcasts have been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And one of the great things about this podcast is that I can go into more detail about each story because there are no time constraints. And it's really easy to show your support just by spreading the word, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends. It really does help. If you want to get in touch with me with show ideas, comments or information, you can via Twitter or Facebook by using at Backtracker UK with a capital B, capital T and a capital UK or emailing me at info at backtracker.co.uk Now, on with the show. Today is part one of a particular mission during the British campaign in the Baltic of 1918-1919 to that was part of the Allied intervention in the Russian Civil War. The code name of the Royal Navy campaign was Operation Red Trek. This was launched in the wake of the armistice of the 11th of November 1918, which ended World War I and the German military occupation of the Baltic countries. The purposes of Operation Red Trek were to stop the rise of Bolshevism in the area, to support the newly independent countries of Estonia and Latvia, and to protect British interests, and to extend the freedom of the seas. In the aftermath of World War I, The countries of Latvia and Estonia were in chaos. The Russian Empire had collapsed and Bolshevik Red Army, pro-independence and pro-German forces were fighting across the region. Riga had been occupied by the German army in 1917 and various forces were still active in the area. Estonia had established a national army and, with the support of Finnish volunteers, was defending against an attack by the 7th Army of the Soviet Russian Red Army. A Royal Navy squadron was sent under Rear Admiral Edwin Alexander Sinclair. This force consisted of modern C-class cruisers and V and W-class destroyers. In December 1918, Sinclair sailed into Estonian and Latvian ports, sending in troops and supplies and promising to attack the Bolsheviks as far as my guns can reach, he said. In January 1919, he was succeeded in command by Rear Admiral Walter Cowan. The deployment was unpopular among the Royal Navy sailors, and there were minor mutinies in January and again in the autumn of 1919. The Royal Navy had a squadron of light cruisers and destroyers in the Baltic under the command of Admiral Sir Walter Cohen, with its base at Bjorko in the Gulf of Finland. 
But the marine vessel that's the star of this particular show is HM Coastal Motorboat 4. These are the small high-speed torpedo boats evolved in Great Britain by John Thornycroft and Company Limited. The CMBs carry two torpedoes and rely only on speed and helmsmanship to escape punishment. During the War of 1914-18 and during the operations in Russian waters in 1919s, they proved their value. They are, in smooth water, the fastest naval craft and in fair weather, no other surface craft can catch them. Word of the Week Now my offering to you this week is a different use of the word. Flap To be in a flap, meaning to be worried, dates from 1916. It was originally a naval expression derived from the restless flapping of birds, but quickly spread into everyday English during the First World War. The adjective unflappable meaning unflustered or imperturbable, appeared in the 1950s. Before I go on, I must tell you more about the hero of this story, Augustus Willington Shelton Agar, who was born on the 4th of January 1890 at Kandy in Ceylon, India. He was the 13th of 13 children and always regarded 13 as his lucky number, His father was Irish and took up tea planting in what was then Ceylon. He was married to an Austrian lady, and all the boys were sent to English public schools, all the girls to either Austrian or German schools. Augustus joined the Royal Navy and qualified for his pilot certificate, after which he was transferred to the Naval Air Station at Eastchurch in what would become the Royal Naval Air Service. This later amalgamated with the Army's Royal Flying Corps to form the RAF, but they had no planes. There was as yet no aircraft industry and the Admiralty was reluctant to spend money on aircraft. In 1913, Augustus moved to HMS Hibernia, one of the last pre-Dreadnought battleships, known as the Wobbly Eight, where he served for three years, mainly in the home fleet, but with a visit to the Dardanelles at the time of the evacuation of Gallipoli, This was his first time under fire. Then, after a short course at the torpedo school, he joined the coastal motorboat, CMB, based at Ossie Island in the River Blackwater as torpedo and mining officer. For this particular show, we're lucky enough to have a recording of Captain Augustus Agar describing this particular mission. And here he is talking about his time at Ossie Island. In the spring of 1919, I was serving ashore at Ossie Island with our coastal motorboats. These boats were fast motorboats designed by Sir John Thornycroft of a skimmer design. We carried one torpedo and uh, the bigger boats carried two and our purpose was to operate in small groups called flotillas against enemy ships and torpedo them. After some time there, he was called to the Admiralty and seconded to the Secret Service. 
Captain Augustus Agar received his instructions from the then head of MI6, simply known as C, who at the time was Captain Sir Mansfield George Smith Cumming, a British naval officer who served as the first chief of the Secret Intelligence Service. Now I have to tell you more about Captain Sir Mansfield George Smith Cumming, who was an interesting man in himself, as you can imagine. In 1914, he was involved in a serious road accident in France, in which his son tragically was killed. Legend had it that he escaped the car wreck by amputating his own leg using a penknife. Although hospital records have shown, however, that while both legs were broken, his left foot was amputated only the day after the accident. Later, he would often tell stories so fantastic about how he lost his leg and would shock people by interrupting meetings in his office by suddenly stabbing his artificial leg with a knife, letter opener or fountain pen. As for his progression to the head of MI6, he had spent seven years in operations against Malay pirates on HMS Bellafon and then in Egypt in 1883. He started suffering from seasickness and in 1885 was placed on the retired list as unfit for service. Prior to being appointed to run the Secret Service Bureau, or SSB, he was working on boon defences in Bilsden on the River Hamble. He became known as C after his habit of sometimes signing himself with a C, eventually written in green ink, which was a habit that became custom for later directors, although the C now stands for Chief. The current head of MI6, Richard Moore, confirmed in an interview with The Independent that all his messages are written in green ink, and even messages from his computer are sent in green, so that anyone who gets a message in green knows it's directly from him. Here's some more from Captain Agar. And the head of our secret service thought, perhaps, that these fast boats of ours might uh, help him in getting his agents across into Petrograd, which lay on the River Neva. And I was chosen to handle this job, to take two of our fast boats and their crews across from Osi Island to the Gulf of Finland. Our boats were put aboard a Swedish uh, the coaster, ostensibly for, for Stockholm, but we offloaded the boats at a port called Hango in Finland. All done in the greatest of secrecy, and of course, with the backing of the Foreign Office behind us, with uh, money and influence. Instructions given to Captain Agar, together with two CMBs plus crews, were that he would be transported to the Baltic under the guise of civilian salesmen, where he and his crew would set up a courier service between the Finnish coast and a British agent in Petrograd. I think I'll let the captain continue the story. We were told, and actually did, forget everything about the Navy. We, were, we took our own money with us. I was given a thousand pounds for our expenses. The first time in my life I'd ever handled such a sum of money. Along with the money, the crew wore plain clothes, 
but carried minimum uniform and a white ensign, just in case. Agar reported to Admiral Sir Walter Cohen on his arrival in the Baltic. The Admiral told him his squadron had three tasks. One, to stop the Russian fleet from interfering with the freedom of the Baltic states. Two, to make certain the Germans were observing the terms of the peace treaty. And three, to give British shipping free access to Finland. Our intention at first was to take these couriers, as we called them, they were as secret agents, from the coast of Finland, land them at night, across the Gulf of Finland, on the coast of Estonia, a matter of about, well, 50 miles or so, which was well within our capacity, but nevertheless, it was a very, very stiff problem, this, to get the boats across this long stretch of coastline and our first problem was how to do that. All this was planned in the mind of a wonderful man. He was the head of our secret service. Everyone called him by one single letter of the alphabet, C, and he was known as C. He planned this whole show. Well, this problem still remained. And a solution, luckily, occurred by sheer luck. <laughs> Word on the street. And this week we're headed towards Great Western Lane in BS5. Here stood the Great Western Cotton Factory, which provided work for so many of the Barton Hill residents. Many of the employees were brought in from the north of England, including the manager, whose daughter, Eva Turner, was a well-known opera singer. An underground school for the children of the employees ran the length of the building. Captain Augustus Agar set out with his two boats, HM Coastal Motorboat 4, and another on the 17th of June, 1919. The Swedish cargo steamer called in at Hango, offloaded the two boats. The crews consisted of myself, and each boat carried a midshipman. I had Hampshire in my boat, and Sindel's in command of the second boat, and Marshall. We each had a mechanic. We offloaded at Hango, we went to sea, at once, the boats in the meanwhile had been painted a different colour. We went to the rendezvous, it was a small matter of 15 miles or so, and there, sure enough, was the destroyer waiting for us, HMS Voyager. This was around about 6, 7 o'clock in the evening, and she took us all the way along the Finnish coast to the northern part of the Gulf of Finland, in a place called Bioko. And there, the tow was slipped, and we went into the sound where I could see, after a little while, a small Admiralty oiler anchored at the tail end of the sound. We made straight for her. And once alongside the oiler, it was obvious that they were expecting us. We made fast, and the master, tell me, he'd got supplies for us, petrol and uh, stores, 
fool. Then he took me by the sleeve of my coat and he said, Look here, young fella, I've got something you might be interested in. Come with me. And he took me to the after part of the small oiler where there was a two or three large tarpaulins and something under them. He said, These are new still. And he lifted the tarpaulins and underneath there were two submarine torpedoes. It didn't take us long to get those in. So we were ready, in a way, to go to our next secret destination. One of the problems the team needed to solve to complete the mission was to find a secret base that was in just the right position to complete what they had to do. We needed badly a secret base and luck was on my side. One of our secret agents, I had two specially attached to me, ST-31 and ST-30, suggested to me that there was a small, tiny harbour further in the Gulf of Finland and very close, dangerously close, one should say, to the Russian front. Now, this tiny harbour was, in ordinary days of peace, the headquarters of the Tsarist sailing club. But now it was deadly. Well, the problem was to get the boats there. And I could only do this secretly and at night. But I was, first of all, make sure that it suited us. And I was assured that it would. And also that my secret agents had the means of uh, getting stores there. Petrol, oil, and other things. Besides a nice house where we could live. They called them Dutchess because attached to the yacht club were several dozen of these delightful Dutchess used again in pre-war days, in Tsarist days, by members of the yacht. I decided to use this harbour and one of the Dutchess as our headquarters. So we left around about 10 o'clock at night, took both boats, but not at high speed, keeping well out of sight of the coastline, we steered towards the Russian frontier, having got to a point which we thought was uh, about the right distance from the shore. We turned in to try and find this place, but to make sure I had one of our secret agents on the end of the small breakwater by the yacht club, flashing powerful electric torch with a secret signal. And sure enough, the agent was there and the signal was there. It was perfect, absolutely ideal for our purpose. And in the middle was an old Swedish sailing boat at anchor, which we used as a mooring. And we unloaded what we'd taken from the oiler and had some sleep badly needed, I may tell you. Here we have Captain Augustus Agar describing some of the perils that they had to face. Also bear in mind at the time, the enemy had a very strong presence in the area. Our purpose was to get in touch with our main agent inside Russia. His number was ST-25 and that's all we knew about him. To do this, I proposed as soon as we could to make our final journey from Teriyaki, which is the name of the secret place where we derived, to the mouth of the river Neva as the crow flies in a direct line is no more than about, I would say, 40 miles. Relatively short journey 
the boats of ours which could do over 40 knots. But there was a lot in between the two. There was the, first of all, to the south, there was Kronstadt, this large, enormous fortress on Kotlin Island. Between Kronstadt and the mainland on the north, there was a series of fortresses, about 10 or 12 of them, all small fortresses and not more than 400 yards apart, each one of them. They were connected in turn by breakwaters. They were three to four feet below the water. And according to the secret chart, there were three of them. I managed, luckily, when we were in Helsingfors, with the help of our senior agent, a man called Sokolov, to get one of the secret Russian charts. And on these Russian charts was shown the exact position of these breakwaters. And this man assured me that they were very narrow boat passage in these, these breakwaters, which were known to him and the smugglers who used them in the smuggling between Finland and Petrograd. Well, if I could be sure of it and get the boats through one of these passages, there was nothing between the fortresses and the River Neva on the other side. And once I could get to the River Neva, there I could land an agent who would contact SC-25 and within, say, a few days or a week, bring him back. I felt my luck was in. I've always been an optimist. I'm the 13th of a family of 13, and I'm sure my luck would hold. A big decision for me, as a young lieutenant, aged not more than 27, but still, uh, it had to be done. I decided to leave at 10 o'clock at night, uh, as our hours of darkness were very limited, between 10 and 2 o'clock. And when it comes to the middle of June, as to say 21st, 22nd of June, this limited further. So whatever I did, I had to get and do it between the up to, I was up to the 21st of June. The reason why they had a limited amount of time during the day to complete their mission was because of the White Nights, a period around the end of June when it was twilight nearly all night due to the time of year. I landed my first courier by going through the chain of forts using a track which I'd plotted from the Russian chart. My path took me between the two forts, numbers seven and eight, if my memory serves me right, and once through those forts, I cracked on full speed, which was 40 knots, and it was a matter of minutes before I was in the mouth of the River Neva. Once in the mouth of the River Neva, we unloaded a small skiff, they called it a pram, which I carried in the CMB and into which I put the courier. He rode towards the reeds. In the meanwhile, I turned back and I headed the boat back for Terioki, the same way as I'd come. Now, we were lucky in crossing the breakwaters, very lucky. Although I 
trusted to a certain extent the checks given us by the smugglers. They call them contrabandists. And I had one on board. I paid him heavily. It so happens that after a series of southwesterly winds, the water in the gulf piles up, uh, sometimes as much as three feet. And it's, it so happens that uh, there had been a series of southwesterly winds, and the water was at least a foot, if not two foot, higher than it normally would have been. That meant to say that the breakwaters, the stone breakwaters, guarding this chain of forts, were four to five feet uh, below the surface of the water. Now our boats were designed on the principle of the skimmer, and we drew, even at high speed, about three foot six uh, light when we were light. For that reason, we could skim over the breakwaters, irrespective of where the secret channels were. And to that extent, luck was on our side, also on our side, in being able to steam over minefields, because the whole of the Gulf was littered, simply littered, with Russian minefields, their favorite weapon of war. Once upon a time. Boring. It was the best of times. It was the worst. You got that right. What's your problem? We want new stories. Hi, it's Frankie. And Garrett. And we host the Ever-Trending Story, a weekly podcast where we bring to life a fictional story created by our own minds and some of the hottest, craziest trends from the internet. Find us wherever you download podcasts and be sure to join the fun on social media at EverTrendingPod. Back in the day facts. Let's start off with the 18th of March, 1834, when six farm labourers from Tolpuddle in Dorset were sentenced to be transported to Australia for forming a trade union. They called it the Friendly Society of Agricultural Labourers, and they were arrested on charges under an obscure act during a labour dispute against cutting wages before being convicted. They were eventually pardoned in 1836, after mass protests by sympathisers and support from Lord John Russell, and they were returned to England between 1837 and 1839. On the 19th of March, 1895, August and Louis Lumiere record their first footage using their newly patented cinematograph. On the 20th of March, 1616, Sir Walter Raleigh is freed from the Tower of London, after their amazing 13 years of imprisonment. The 21st of March, 1963, and Alcatraz Federal Penitentiary in California closes. During its time as a prison, it was home to the likes of murderer Robert Franklin Stroud, better known as the Birdman of Alcatraz, Russian spy Morton Sobel, and of course, Al Capone. The longest-serving inmate was Alvin Carpis, whose nickname was Creepy Carpis because of his sinister smile. 
He not only has the honour of serving the longest time as a prisoner at Alcatraz, a total of 26 years, but he's also the only public enemy number one to have been taken alive by the FBI. Bearing in mind there was only ever four public enemy number ones. On the 22nd of March 1963, the Beatles released their debut album, Please Please Me containing such classic songs as I Saw Her Standing There, Do You Want to Know a Secret, and Twist and Shout. And lastly, the 23rd of March 1918 saw the third day of the German Spring Offensive, when the 10th Battalion of the Royal West Kent Regiment is annihilated, with many of the men becoming prisoners of war. And so, the background has been set for this amazing story. And if you want to find out what happens next, you're going to have to tune in to the next show, when I continue with the tale of Operation Red Trek. And I'd like to thank Chris Essex and Peter Howard Dobson from the Society of Old Framlinghamians, who were a huge help in getting together all the information I needed to complete this really amazing tale, which I have to say I'm very excited for you to hear. Thank you once again for listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter or Facebook by looking up at... Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T, and a capital UK. I also occasionally post onto TikTok and Instagram. So do come along and find me, because it's amazing to hear from you and get some feedback or even ideas for future shows. As a small independent podcaster, your help and support is always appreciated. And one way you can do that is to rate the show wherever you get your podcasts. Leaving a review also helps as it gives other people an idea of what the show's about. The show is regularly released on Mondays. So until next time, guys, take care and look after each other. Mm -hmm.